Daniel chapter 11, just a few verses as we begin. Hear now the word of the living God. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with the great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, let's pray together now. Living God, we pray that you might encourage our souls through your word. We thank you for your word. And we pray that by your spirit, you would bring the redemptive gift that you've given to us of the voice of Christ. Help us to hear with clarity, to preach with clarity, to look to Christ by your spirit. To love him, to savor him, to long for his return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were told the next 500 years of the future, detail by detail, before it unfolded. And at the end of that 500 years, the final detail would be that Jesus would come. What would it do for you? That's really the question that we ask at the beginning of Daniel chapter 11. Boys and girls, if you could see what would happen in the next 500 years with a lot of details, not just a little bit of a picture like some of these other chapters in Daniel have given us, but all of the color and all of the lines. And if you could see that at the end of that 500 years of history, Jesus would come, what would it do for you? This morning, I want to do three things in Daniel chapter 11. Number one, I want to give you an overview of the chapter. Now, those of you that looked at the email this week or knew that it was coming, perhaps you had a chance to read Daniel chapter 11. It is indeed an intriguing chapter. It's a long one, and there are a lot of details. But this is the word of the living Christ, and it is for our good. So I want us, firstly, then, to look at an overview, very briefly, of the entire chapter. The second thing that I want to do with you this morning is I want to walk through this chapter briefly, but looking at some of those details. So we're going to move from an overview to section-by-section, piece-by-piece details. And then thirdly and finally, I want us to see some lessons which we can learn from such a detailed passage. Number one, an overview. Number two, a walkthrough. And number three, application lessons. Let's begin then, brothers and sisters, with an overview. Let me just lay out for you. If we were to zoom out, we've been doing a lot of zooming out and zooming in as we've walked through Daniel, haven't we? If you're just joining us, this is your first Sunday with us. We've been walking through this book of Holy Scripture. This book is about a man, a faithful man, a Jew 
whose people had been carted off into exile in a foreign land, their land and their temple crushed, and it seemed like God, the living God, had ceased to be faithful to them. That their promises that they had previously clung to were no longer there for them. Many of them destroyed, and yet throughout this 70-year time, we see Daniel, piece by piece, receiving visions from God, Really, visions in many cases from the Son of God himself about the future and the hope that is there as he longed for the coming one. Daniel occurs about 500 or so years before the birth of Christ. What about chapter 11? What's an overview? Well, this chapter is a general outline of history from the end of Persia right up to Rome. I say a general outline of history. We've seen this before. In several cases, Daniel would receive visions, sometimes with animal figures, sometimes with statue figures. And they all kind of pointed to the fact that the kingdoms of this world are nothing, but that God has sent his Messiah to come and to bring about the kingdom that never ends. Well, we get a a general outline of the time from Persia, which is that next group of people who conquered the Babylonians. From Persia, moment by moment, century by century, decade by decade, right up to Rome. It is Daniel's 70 weeks from chapter 9, but in much more specific detail. So if you know anything about Daniel, you remember our time in chapter 9. There were a few verses that gave us 70 weeks. Well, this is those 70 weeks but with a lot more detail. Really, there are three sections of our overview. Let me give them to you. In Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 20, there are the details of three kings that shall arise from Daniel's time onward. And then a fourth mighty king. And that mighty king, boys and girls, we've seen before, his name is Alexander the Great. Then, as we shall see, Alexander's kingdom will be taken away from him at his death and divided into four. We've seen that before. Then, the chapter, really history, moves back and forth between two of those four kings. Again, Alexander the Great had his kingdom taken away and divided into four. And this chapter is going to spend time on two of those regions, the north and the south. Get this, in our chapter, there are literally six different periods of war. Not one war, not two war, but six periods of wars that are recounted or prophesied. And verses 2 through 20 go back and forth in stunning detail, unfolding the various kings of the north and the south and all of these various wars. So much so that I thought it would be helpful to put a little insert in your bulletin. Take that insert out this morning. Great pronunciation guide, I'm sure. You don't need to know all of these names. But as we walk through briefly in just a moment, the first 20 verses of chapter 11, you might want a guide to see, wait a minute, we just switched kings again. Who are we talking about? Well, you have the south and the Ptolemies. Boys and girls, I know it starts with a P, but the P is silent. The Ptolemies and the north, the Seleucids, with a whole bunch of Seleucuses and Antiochuses. 
But that's just the first 20 verses. And then in verse 21, turn there with me, we read, uh, we read about a new leader. We've seen this leader before in Daniel. And in verse 21 it says this, And in his place shall arise a vile person. Who is that vile person? Well, that takes us to our next section. That vile person is Antiochus Epiphanes. Or on your list there, the very last ruler, Antiochus IV. We've met him in Daniel chapter 8. Remember, he's the one that gets angry because he's been chastised by other people. And so he comes into Jerusalem and beats up on God's people and does blasphemous and murderous things. But eventually, a group of Jews will riot. They will overtake his rule and cause a revolt known as the Maccabean Revolt. And that is also prophesied in verses 21 to 35. But then we get to verse 36 to the end and we meet yet a third person. This is, I believe, King Herod. Yes, boys and girls, the King Herod, who was alive during the birth of Christ. We move from Daniel's time all the way to the doorstep of Christ. That's the overview of this chapter. And it goes back and forth. Kings of the north, kings of the south, Antiochus, Herod, all of these kinds of historical things. Now, boys and girls, think about this. All of this was written before it happened. We're going to look at these various kings and rulers and we're going to say, wow, look at that. But we have the ability to look back and say, yes, this happened. Yes, this happened. Yes, this happened. But Daniel is seeing this all before it happened, which teaches us something about our God and what he knows and what he can do. So that's our overview. Verses 2 through 20. Some beginning details, some kings going back and forth. Verses 21 to 35, this vile person. And verses 36 to the end, King Herod leading us to the very doorstep of Christ. That's our overview. Well, brothers and sisters, now let us walk through those three sections. Number two, as we walk through this chapter. Now this morning, I want to remind you of a couple things as we walk through I've given you this list here, hopefully that you might spend some time thinking about it. If you have questions, you're always welcome to ask. But a passage like Daniel chapter 11 is a little bit different than reading Romans chapter 8. A passage like Daniel 11 is a little bit different than reading Genesis chapter 1. Because what we have here is prophecy unfolding. Remember, Daniel chapter 11 just picks up on the vision that Gabriel brings Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. This is what's going to happen, Daniel, to you and to your people and to the world. And we sometimes read Scripture as we ought in Romans chapter 8, for instance, and we mine every single word. And we're right to do that. But we're going to go a little more quickly through this chapter. And it's not that every single word is not important. It's just that we have to take the broader picture of what these sentences and these paragraphs are teaching us. So number two, let's do a walk through. Are you ready? Beginning in verse two, the vision that Gabriel brings Daniel continues. 
And there is mention of three kings. These are Persian kings that have dealings with God's people. The Puritan Matthew Poole names them as the following, quote, Cyrus, who reigned alone after the death of Darius the Mede, his uncle, Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, and Darius, Hystapes. Now, those names are not what is important, but there are three kings that do indeed arise after Daniel is long gone. But then in verse two, we meet a fourth. You see that there. Three kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. Was there ever a king who arose in Persia who was richer than all the previous Persian kings? Yes, Xerxes the first. He's also sometimes in the Old Testament called Ahasuerus. He lived from 485 to 464 B.C. He did indeed have riches. He was wealthier than all of the kings who came before him. And as was foretold about him, he used that wealth to fight against Greece. Go look it up. It's in the history books. But more importantly, it's in the prophecy today. But then in verse 3, we meet a mighty king. Look at there, boys and girls. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise. Who is a mighty king that is richer and grander than Xerxes? Well, Alexander the Great. This moves us now from Persia ruling the world to Greece. You can read of Alexander the Great elsewhere. Daniel chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. He was spoken of. He was prophesied of there, but with much less detail. But then we read in verse 4 that his kingdom will arise but then eventually be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven. But not among his posterity. Boys and girls, that's a big word for children. None of his boys will become king. No. His kingdom will be divided up. And we saw this back in chapter 8 when we saw a description of him. There he's called the horn, if you remember. And his kingdom will be divided into four. Macedonia ruled by Cassander, Thrace and Asia Minor, Syria under Seleucus, and Egypt under Ptolemy. You can go look it up. It's in the history books. But more importantly, it's in the prophecy to Daniel. Alexander the Great had two sons that were assassinated and other generals would take his place. And then, for a long period of time in Daniel 11, we now look at two of those four kingdoms. Alexander the Great, by the age of about 30, conquered much of the known world. But he died, and that kingdom was split into four. And we're going to look at two of those four regions, the north and the south. And in Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 20, there are a series of about six wars that happen between these two regions, the north, Antiochus and Seleucus, and the south, or Egypt, Ptolemy. And the challenge for us, brothers and sisters, is when we read this account, this prophecy, we're not often told by Scripture, and now we're switching to a new ruler. It just picks up. As you see in the list, in the bulletin, one Ptolemy replaces another Ptolemy, and we're not given that. 
But the dynasties continue and they fight. So a couple of examples. Look at verse 5. And also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. But a branch, from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. You're going to see king of the north, king of the south. King of the North. But now we're given details. What do these details mean? Well, quickly, the king of the south is Ptolemy, the ruler of Egypt. One of his princes, Seleucus I, is mentioned here in the text of Scripture. They had originally been aligned. In verse 6, we read of a daughter. That's the historical figure, the daughter of one of these named Berenice. Listen, as Sinclair Ferguson gives an example of the intricate back and forth in just these few verses. Quote, at the end of some years, verse 6, that is, later in these dynasties, a marriage alliance was attempted between the king of the north and the daughter of the king of the south. This seems to be fulfilled in the bigamous marriage between Antiochus II, grandson of Seleucus I, and Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus. Shortly afterward... Ptolemy died and Antiochus divorced Berenice, returning to his earlier wife, Laodice. Fearing the possibility of an eternal triangle, Laodice poisoned Antiochus and encouraged her son, Seleucus Callinicus, to murder Berenice and her child, thus leaving the way clear for him to inherit the throne. And brothers and sisters, this happens for the next 400 years. Ferguson continues, the dynastic feud continued when Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, arose in his place, verse 7, overcame the forces of the north, executed Laodice, and pillaged the northern kingdom. Sometime later, Seleucus Callinicus regained power, marched against Ptolemy, and was defeated, verse 9. His sons, Seleucus, Chironus, and Antiochus III, later the Great, continued the conflict, verse 10. Antiochus III then led an army, verse 10 says, a multitude of great forces, to Ptolemy's fortress, end quote. Now, brothers and sisters, we could take time this morning to trace every single one of those details with the word of God and what has unfolded in the history books since then. And the glorious beauty of all of this is that everything that we have just said is in the history books, but more importantly, it is in the word of God foretold. Daughters being given, alliances being given. What was just read at the end would be considered the third of six Syrian wars. So quickly then, let's see how the next few verses bounce back and forth. Look at verse 9. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south. Now, we've advanced a little bit here. The king of the north in verse 9 is Seleucus II, who attempted to capture Ptolemy. 
Verse 10 says this, however, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. Did that happen? Well, yes, it did. His sons did stir up strife. Seleucus III and Antiochus III both fight with Egypt. And for a season, Antiochus achieved control of Palestine and Syria. Verse 11, and the king of the south shall be moved with rage. That's Ptolemy IV, if you're following the list. And go out and fight with him. With the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. It's like a ping pong match in the first 20 verses of Daniel 11. Who's going to win? Who's going to reign? Who's going to be king of kings and lord of lords? It continues in verses 12 through 14. You read of a fifth conflict or war. There in verse 15, we're now at the king of the north, Antiochus III, and the forces of the south, that's Ptolemy V. Verse 16 reads this way, But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. It's a reference to the year 197 B.C. when Antiochus III conquered Palestine, including the Holy Land. We have another giving of daughters. Verse 17. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or be for him. Who is this? Well, the history books record for us that Antiochus III did indeed give his daughter to Ptolemy V in marriage. And interestingly enough, not only is this recorded here in the word of God before it happened, it's actually written, boys and girls, on the Rosetta Stone. Imagine that. All of the millions of dollars that liberal scholars put in to try to convince us that the word of God cannot be trusted. And we actually have the word of God written for us and inscribed in historical detail on stones of pagan kings. Well, verses 18 and 19 follow Antiochus III's historic fights with Rome. By this time, Rome's becoming a dominant force while trying to get new territory. And then we have another shift in power. Look at verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. We've seen that phrase several times in Daniel. Glorious kingdom, glorious land. It's Jerusalem. But within a few days he shall be destroyed. Well, surely there's not an example of another king actually taxing. The Jews, I mean, that would almost cause us to think that the Lord God knew exactly what he was prophesying. But there is. Seleucus IV did indeed send his minions to impose taxes, to include taxes on the people of Jerusalem so he could pay off family war debt. You know, there's a lot of war debt here in these 20 verses. You can actually read this in the non-biblical book entitled 2 Maccabees chapter 3. That's just section 1. And you see, we go back and forth 
But in verse 21, we meet a vile person. And we begin our second of three sections of this text. Look at verse 21. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Well, at the very end of your list of the ping pong back and forth between the south and the north, the very last name is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. We've heard of him before. The vile person of Daniel chapter 9. How do we know that this is Antiochus IV? Well, he was prophesied, of course, elsewhere in Daniel. But Antiochus IV did indeed take power by intrigue. You want to know how this vile person became king? He killed the infant son of Seleucus IV so that he would be king. That's the vile person and the intrigue of Antiochus IV. He now becomes the steady ruler for a while. He engages with the people of Judea. And there were in Judea at that time, you see the dates there, 175 to 164 B.C., various individuals. There were basically two groups of individuals living in Judea at that time. Those that were faithful to the word of God and wanted the priestly line to be what it was. And then there were those who wanted to mix with culture just a little bit. They're called the Tobiads. They wanted the Jewish people to look a little bit more respectable to the rest of the world. Does that sound familiar? So there's a back and forth among the people of Judea as Antiochus IV is kind of ruling the known world. In verse 22 we read this, With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. This is likely a reference to the murder of the high priest. And under Antiochus's wink, a non-qualified... High priest is installed in his place who is not in the priestly line. The prince, the priest of the covenant is destroyed. Well, the text continues in verses 25 and 26. We get to our sixth war. I told you, boys and girls, there were six wars. And in verses 25 and 26, there they are. But there are such great details as we trace this. For instance, look at verse 27. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. Two kings sitting at the same table, speaking lies. Well, that's a reference to Ptolemy VI and Antiochus Epiphanes, who had an alliance for a while. Then verse 28 says this. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart, that is Antiochus IV, shall be moved against the Holy Covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. What happens is Antiochus IV takes revenge of sorts out on the Jews and on the temple. We read in verse 30 of some of his blasphemous acts. Verse 30 says that there are ships from Cyprus 
It's another historical detail that's in the history books, but more importantly, is actually prophesied in the word of God. This is the Romans. This is the Romans. And Antiochus tries to head to Egypt again to get more land on conquest. And the Romans give him a humiliating turnaround. Humiliating. So he heads back to Jerusalem. And like a little child who's been told no in a way that he or she doesn't want to be told no, he starts thrashing and screaming at whoever is there. And he heads back to Jerusalem and he crushes what seems to be a rebellion against his power. And in doing so, he sides with those Jews who just wanted Judaism to be a little bit more respectable with the ways of the world, a little more Greek. So here's what happens. In his anger, he sacrifices a pig on the temple altar in Jerusalem. He ends the Jewish feast days and Sabbaths for three years. We read of this already in Daniel. He commanded that in Jerusalem, God be referred to as Jupiter. And as verse 30 through 32 tell us, there were some Hebrews who apostatized from the faith and joined with him. What a history lesson. Verse 34. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join with them by intrigue, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So we have Antiochus IV now ruling. The ping-pong matches are basically over, except with Rome. There are many Jews who have given up on the covenant that God has given. We have a false priest as the head of the covenant. We have pigs being sacrificed on the altar, which would have been an abomination to any old covenant member. We have signs that the God of Israel should be referred to according to the gods of this world. But the text tells us with this fall, there will be aid to bring purity. Now, when did that happen? Well, that was the Maccabean revolt. When certain Jews, under the leadership of a priest and his five sons, known as the Maccabees, sought to purify the land. And they did go on a rampage. But eventually, they overcame and the temple was rededicated in December of 165 B.C. It's where we get the Jewish holiday Hanukkah from. It became an annual celebration, which Jesus likely would have celebrated when he was a boy. And their revolt purified things and brought about a temple system again that would have broadly been in the right place, right for the Messiah to come. Well, in our third and final section, verses 36 to 45, we read of some of the results of this purity. Eventually, a dynasty of kings comes known as the Hasmoneans. And during their reign, they acquire a lot more land for God's people. And in some cases, they do that through false or forced conversions. They go to the old peoples of the Edomites, you can read of them in the Old Testament, and they sort of force them to become members of the covenant. And that's where we're at. Verse 36. 
Then the king shall do according to his own will. Now, many people think this is a continued reference to Antiochus IV, that the story of Antiochus just continues. Others say, no, the king of verse 36 is actually Rome. Others say it's actually the pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Many of the reformers thought that. Other people say this is actually a big pause and we skip thousands of years to the end times. Brothers and sisters, I actually think the best answer is that this is a reference to Herod the Great who was installed with the support of Rome. And here's why. This can't be Antiochus because the text says that this one, verse 36, is attacked by the king of the north, but he was the king of the north. Verse 35 seems to give a conclusive statement to the previous drama. Look there, it says, because it is still for the appointed time. Some of the descriptions in the rest of these verses don't actually fit the history of Antiochus. And verse 37 reads this way. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any father, any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. It seems like there's a veiled reference to him not honoring the God of the Jews. Verse 38 gives us this detail. But in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses. And a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Was there ever a ruler who was quasi a part of the people of God, but did not honor God? Who built fortresses all over Jerusalem? Yes, there was. Herod the Great. Then we get to verses 40 and following, and we meet some of Herod's friends. Other historical figures like Mark Antony, the king of the south, and Octavian, the king of the north. I told you this chapter is a ping pong match. But we're moving ever further to the doorstep of Jesus. If indeed the last king of this chapter is Herod the Great, we read these words. In verse 44, after rebuilding all kinds of things, making changes to the temple, setting up idols, if you would, even on the crest of the temple. We read this in verse 44 of Herod the Great, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Now, again, I'm aware that many good and godly brothers and sisters think of this as something that's yet to come in the future. Others try to read these details as Antiochus or someone else. But was there ever a king who did indeed get news from the north that troubled him and news from the east that troubled him, who was a quasi-seemingly member of God's people, but not, who was idolatrous, who was wicked, who conspired with Rome. Was there ever such a person? Yes, there was. Herod the Great. 
What's the disturbing news from the north? Well, one of his sons, he had many sons, came and told him, Hey, Dad, two of my brothers have gone north. And they've spoken to Caesar about you. So being the wonderful father that he was, Herod the Great had both of them killed. What about the disturbing news from the east? What news would cause the seeming ruler of the entire region, who seemingly had the support of Rome, great distress as it came to his ears from the east? Let me read it to you, because the word of God gives it to us. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The text tells us that he was indeed troubled to receive this news from the east. And what do we read at the end of verse 44? Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. What did Herod the Great do, boys and girls, when he heard that little baby Jesus had been born somewhere? He sent his soldiers to kill every boy they could find of the Jews aged two years and younger. That's how concerned he was that no one would not let him be king. Verse 45 seems to picture his end. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And actually, Herod the Great did that. He built fortresses. He was a god of fortresses, if you will. And he built them between the seas and the mountains of Jerusalem. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. And that's what happened to Herod the Great. He died of illness without the aid of anyone. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that this is a long journey, and we've just had a history lesson. And you can go and read all of these things in the history books. They're there, piece by piece, but more importantly, they are in the prophecy of God. We've given an overview, and we've walked very quickly, piece by piece, through the unfolding drama from Daniel to the doorstep of Jesus. As we close, what are lessons that we learn? I just have four for you, and we're finished. Of course, undoubtedly, there could be many more. But the first is this. See the instability of God-hating kingdoms. If you ever want a history book to tell you how futile it is to try to rule and to lead... And to reign with your fist raised towards God, read Daniel chapter 11. Amassing great power and then in a moment, dead. Next one. Amassing great power and wealth and then in a moment, dead. The next one. And back and forth. Not just this list, brothers and sisters, but continuing on. 
King after king after king. There's great instability. And as we look at the world around us, we don't have it prophesied for us in the same exact way with the same exact detail, but we're seeing the same thing unfolding today, aren't we? King after king, ruler after ruler, with fist raised toward God. And sometimes we may be tempted to think this is going to be the one that might actually be able to overturn the things that God has purposed to do. And it will never happen. Lesson number two, and I hope this is abundantly clear. But just look at the detail. See the detailed foreknowledge of God on display. I mean, we know that God, by His Spirit, gives prophetic word. But look in exhausting detail how each of these pieces came to pass. There's apologetic value here. Details that occur here in Daniel, written long before it happened, show up in other writings. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, never heard a sermon like this for 30 minutes. We're just kind of going through history. I'm not sure I can trust the Bible. Friend, consider that the things that we've spoken of here not only show up in the Word of God, which is true and active and living, but they show up in the Rosetta Stone, the writings of Josephus, the book of the Maccabees, See the detailed foreknowledge of God on display. Third lesson. See that evil kingdoms will sometimes draw people away from God's people. See that evil kingdoms will sometimes draw people away from God's people. How so? Verse 32. There we were in that time of Antiochus Epiphanes, the vile person, if you recall. And verse 32 simply says this. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Oh, yes, there will always be a people faithful in God's church. But here, the ruler of the world, the one who brought the kingdom of the world to bear, had flattering words for the covenant people. And those who were not truly a part of the covenant by work of the Spirit fell away. They sided with him. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing new under the sun. That's happening today. The kingdom of this world, the Babylon of this world, entices people away. They go to church. They walk down aisles. They go to vacation Bible schools. They make a profession of faith. But eventually, the kings of the culture give them flattering words. Maybe they're strong words, like those people are crazy. Get out from among them. And they leave. Or maybe they're very subtle words. You know, you can have your Jesus and what I give you, too. The kings of the north and the south and the Antiochus Epiphanes of long ago are recycled every single generation until Christ returns. 
boys and girls, teenagers, hear me. We don't have Antiochus Epiphanes today. We live in a country, the land of the free and the home of the brave. We elect our leader. How could we be in danger of such a thing? And yet with all of our freedom, what are we tempted to do year in and year out? Hold a little bit to what the word of God says and have all that I can have of the world. And you're going to be tempted in ways that I and your parents and your grandparents were not. And you're going to be called all kinds of names. And the question is, will you do wickedly against the covenant? Or will you say, with those of the end of verse 32, I know my God, and by his grace I will remain strong with him. Our fourth and final lesson. See that earthly turmoil only leads to fulfilling the promise of Christ. I don't know if you read this this week or not. A little bit different of a text and of a sermon. But as you read this, you just move back and forth and it's all over the place. And it seems like to us, where are we going? What's happening? This is, this is a, a mystery and it's just unfolding everywhere. But that's how we see it. You know how the living God sees it? Peace by peace. My Messiah will come. Guess what? We're longing for him to come. And it may look to us like we're in Daniel 11 today. We're moving all over the place. Who's ruling? Who's reigning? We can't even keep up. But the living God doesn't see it that way. Every single second of earthly detail only gets us in God's grand design. One step closer to the return of Christ, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Do you know him? Have you heard his voice when he says he'll receive you if you come to him? What a detailed chapter. And yet, it lands us right on the doorstep of the birth of the one who bled for sinners. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. This is indeed a challenging chapter, and yet you are so kind to remind us that in the back and forth of human history, your promise to send your son is sure. And he did come. and He died for us. And now we await his coming again. Give us Daniel's hope as we too look at this promise in the midst of what seems like very challenging days. We pray this in Jesus' name.